A reading from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, starting with verse 1. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. Moses was a hundred and twenty years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days, until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him, sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the, appeal we de- for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day no one dared to ask him any more questions. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. Hope you're doing well. Today, our readings remind us of what truly matters in life. What is central? What's the core? So in a world where I think a lot of us have sensed this, everything seems to be falling apart. Where do we turn? Where do we go? Now, as Christians, this may be obvious at first glance. It's a very preachery thing to say that we trust in Jesus. <laughs> we trust in God, which is true. If I were to ask you who's the central figure of our faith, we would all say God or Jesus is central to our faith. That's the Sunday school answer, right? When you have little kids in Sunday school, they think every answer is Jesus, and usually they're right. The central figure of the American story, though, is different from that, isn't it? The central figure of our cultural context is me <laughs> or you, right? But, but me, what I can make of myself, how I can become more wealthy or popular or powerful. And unfortunately, the Christian faith in the United States, we tend in an attempt to win over the culture, we capitulate to that. So Christianity becomes a self-help program or a way of personal enrichment primarily. Now, each of our stories today push back, I would say lovingly push back, but push back on that narrative. So in this season of ordinary time, which Sam has pointed out that we are in right now, we're just kind of in the tail end of that. In this season of ordinary time, we've been following the story of the children of Israel in the journey uh, uh, from the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea through the desert and to the promised land. We've been following the story. And then today we actually skip to the end. The end of the wilderness wandering, and we hear about the death of Moses. Moses ascends to the mountain. Now, he's done that before. He's done that multiple times. And this was an ancient way of saying that the prophet was going to meet with God or to hear from God. God shows Moses the whole promised land in which his people are about to step into. This is the same land that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God has let Moses see it, even though Moses himself is not going to enter the promised land. All right. So he sees the whole thing, but he himself is not going to go. So Moses has gone all this way. He's been the people's leader, but he won't go any further. God takes Moses up on the mountain, shows him these things, and then Moses dies. Now, there's certainly an element of judgment in this story. Um, there was an incident earlier in Meribah where Moses struck a rock rather than trusting God and doing what God said and speaking to the rock. Because of that, God says Moses will not lead the people into the promised land. But it's interesting because the tone of judgment doesn't seem to be the primary tone of this story. Moses is mortal. That's what we understand. Moses' life is coming to an end. His tasks are now complete, and it's time for new leadership. If anything, what God does is he gives Moses a gift. He gives him grace. He shows him his faithfulness. 
what God has always promised to do and he's told Moses he's going to do. But before that, what he promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that thing is now coming to pass. And he shows Moses that reality. Now, when I always heard this story growing up, I tended to think about Moses. Oh, Moses messed up and he couldn't enter the promised land. And that just must have been incredibly heartbreaking for him. But if we think about it, that may be true. But Moses is an old man who's completed his journey. He's stumbled along the way, but he's been faithful to see it through. And I think about what a gift it would be to receive this at one's death. The gift is not, hey, Moses, you got a whole new adventure awaiting you. No, that, the time for adventure for him is over. But the gift is the reminder God will do for his people what he always promised he will do a sign of God's grace and God's faithfulness. Moses is buried in the valley down below. So he's like everybody else, he's buried. Still, there's some mystery surrounding his death. Nobody knows exactly where he was buried. There's all kinds of mythology that developed around that. And then the narrative says that Moses was 120 years old when he died. Now, this is like a typological number in the Bible for the extreme limit of human life. So a life that is well-lived, that is healthy, that is fruitful, in the Bible, it's described as 120 years. And then we see Moses' life is divided in three sections of 40 years. So he's 40 years in Egypt, kind of growing up, 40 years in Midian, out in the wilderness, until his return to Egypt and the Exodus, and then 40 years as the leader of Israel in the wilderness. So 40-year blocks. As a person who will turn 40 years old in two months... I appreciate this reading, <laughs> just the beginning. I'm just growing up, right? I don't know that I should expect 120 years, um, but, uh, um, but I, like, I like this reading anyway. So God has raised up a new leader for the people of Israel, and his name is Joshua, son of Nun. The narrative is clear. He was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses laid his hands on him. Now, from the earliest days we see, and all throughout the Bible, this was how the spirit was passed down through the physical act of hands being laid. I mean, it's consistent. There's not many practices that are more consistent than this throughout the Bible, and that's as the Spirit is imparted from generation to generation, it is through the laying on of hands. Now, again, I mentioned we have a couple young men in our midst who are preparing for baptism next week. We've had some wonderful conversations. They've been joining our confirmation class as well. It's been really, really wonderful. Um, and we will lay our hands on them next week. Cyril of Jerusalem, who was one of the early church fathers, he wrote in a lecture to those who were preparing for baptism, and he said this, Note the same ceremonial everywhere, both in the Old and New Testament. In Moses' day, the Spirit was given by the imposition of hands, and Peter, New Testament, imparted the Spirit by the imposition of hands. Upon you also who are to be baptized, the grace will come. So this is how the Spirit, how we've understood, passed down. Now, in the Christian life, we don't know what's ahead of us. We don't know what's beyond our life. But God does give us glimpses, and we're called to celebrate those glimpses. Even the greatest prophets throughout history are limited mortal creatures. So we have to remember that this story is not a story about Moses. Each of us is limited. When we get to the end of ourselves, we have to trust there is someone else who needs to take it from here. 
that God is still faithful beyond the course of our lives. And seeing the limitations of our lives is a gift. And I'm not just talking about when we die. I'm talking about in our life now, seeing our own limitations, that we can't do everything. That is a gift. Knowing I can't do it on my own means God has to work and will work outside of me. It's not up to me. God is the hero of my story, and God will always be the hero of the world's story. The other thing this helps us to do is we realize we don't trust in any leader as our hero. You may find an online preacher or an author who you just love what they say, and everything resonates with your heart. Celebrate that. That's good. But don't think of that hero or that leader as the hero of the story. Now, don't get me wrong. We can can overcorrect here. We should be able to trust our leaders to care for us in healthy ways, to live upright lives, to be accountable. But all human leaders have failings. I've been in ministry long enough and worked with many, many leaders uh, over the years to know that it is true for every single one. (laughs) Every single one of us is, is flawed. And it is especially important to say, in addition, not just religious leaders, but that our hope is not in a political movement. Our hope is in the one true God. All empires end, all political movements fade out, but the good news is that God will always care for his people. All right, so we see in this story that the baton is passed from Moses to Joshua. So when Moses dies, there's another faithful leader who takes up the cause. And the mission goes forward without Moses. God's mission will go forward when our time of earthly faithfulness is complete. Now, still, the reading is clear that Moses is unique, okay? So at the time of the writing, the author says, since then, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses. And then they give the reason, because Moses knew God face to face. So Moses, this is why Moses has carried this significant authority for the Jewish faith really throughout history, is we always go back to Moses because Moses is the one who actually saw God face to face. Moses carries this definitive authority. Now think about from Christian perspective. The Christian sees a foreshadowing in today's reading. Think about the new leader's name. So you've got Moses, and then he passes it on to Joshua. Well, Joshua's name is also Yeshua, which is the same name, the exact name, for Jesus. So we see here this kind of foreshadowing of when our life ends, or even the life of our greatest prophets, or when our faithfulness comes to an end, we recognize our own mortality, that there is one who carries it. There is one, again, the foreshadowing, the person of Jesus. So perhaps one theme of this reading is the necessity of endings. Things end. Like Moses, each of our lives will one day come to an end. And God is not dependent on our ability to keep things going. God is always faithful and will be faithful from generation to generation. And he has shown his faithfulness ultimately in Jesus. I think about this, like, at least in my circles, and I'm sure you guys have bumped up with this before, but there's always with every generation, there's like this hand wringing that happens. Worried, is the faith going to make it into the next generation? Like we see all these polls everywhere that people are leaving the faith and, you know, we kind of go, okay, like, is this really going to keep going? And and what is this going to look like? Is Christianity going to survive? 
And our challenge with each generation is to remember afresh that the healing and restoration of the world does not depend on us. <laughs> Anything good we have ever been able to do in our lives, and I believe we are able to do good things, amazing things, but any of those good things is just participation in God's story because of his grace. We are not dependent on, we are dependent on God's faithfulness, not on our own faithfulness. This means no matter how much good we do in this life, we are just faithful stewards of this story where God is the main character, where our humanity is limited. And I think about in each of our own lives, as you go throughout, each of us bump up into this lim limits, right? Into this, gosh, I just reached my capacity and I can't do any more. Or I'm trying to do good. I'm trying to care for my students or I'm trying to care for my uh, patients or my clients or I'm, I'm trying to care for my family and be a good parent. And then we kind of run into this and yet I'm limited, right? I can't do it all. And that's where we have to recognize where our humanity is limited, where we come to the end of ourselves. That is grace because we know there is one who is forever faithful. And Jesus is the one who embodies this for us. Again, the answer, Jesus, right? In our gospel reading, the Pharisees gather together around Jesus, and they do it for one reason. Jesus is becoming a problem, all right? He silenced the Sadducees a few verses earlier, and the Pharisees are worried that he's upending the cart of Jewish society. Now, the Sadducees at the time, I'm holding back my joke, you guys. Uh, they're pretty sad, you see, you know? They were a... Uh, <laughs> All right, if y'all are going to start clapping, it's never happening again. <laughs> never happening again. So the Sadducees were a religious political group at the time, and they represented King Herod's power in and among the Jewish people and his influence. So they were a group that were kind of in cahoots with the Roman government or the Roman representative. And then there was the Pharisees, and they were like the populists of the day. Okay, So you, have, you can almost think of the Sadducees like the elites, it's not really neat like this, but it's one way to think about it. And the Pharisees were the populace. And the Pharisees' job was really to help people understand the law, understand God's grace that's been given in the law. Well, sometimes the Pharisees, when they saw a real threat to the nation, they would join with the establishment types in, in order to be able to, to join together. So this expert in the law starts by being polite. He calls Jesus teacher. That's a polite form of address. And then he asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Now, this was a common question that was asked among rabbis, and it was a way of saying, how do we define ourselves as a people? What do we follow? How do we sum up the law? There were 613 commandments, okay? And the people wanted to know, which ones are the greatest ones? Which ones are the ones that are most central and most defining for us? So often what would happen at this time is the Pharisees would pose a question about the law and then they would debate it amongst themselves. And there were different groups just like there are today and different camps that would emphasize different portions of the law. And there were arguments about it. It was intense. It was part of the process. I attended a Christian college and in our dorm one night, one guy raised the age-old question about where, whether everything in life had been predestined or if people truly have free will. It was the most hotly debated thing I've ever experienced in my entire life, and the debate ended in an actual fistfight. <laughs> so the Pharisees' debates were a bit more serious than this, and they had a bit more gravity to them. 
But it was especially common for rabbis to debate which commandment was the greatest. And they had these um, ways of describing it, that there were light commandments and heavy commandments. Which ones carried more weight? Which ones were heavier? And in Jesus' response, his answer is really traditional. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. And when he says the second is like it, he's not doing a priority thing. He's saying they're connected. The second is connected to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, Jesus says. This was really traditional. Like they're trying to trap Jesus and he gives them a, here's what the law says. And a lot of you would say the exact same thing that I just said. This is standard form. And what he does, though, is it's a mashup or a mix-up of two of the Jewish laws. The first is from the Shema, which is recorded in Deuteronomy 6. The Shema is the closest thing to a creed in Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second commandment Jesus quotes is from Leviticus 19.18, which says, Love your neighbor as yourself. Rabbi Akiba, who's a really um, influential rabbi, said that he called this the greatest principle in the law. So Jesus takes these two things, this command from the Shema, and then he takes this greatest principle in the law and he mashes them together. And he says, these are the ones that are important. And he does this for a reason. The Rabbi Hillel, who at Jesus' time was really the most influential rabbi, he said, if you look at two commandments and they have the same defining word in them, they're always supposed to be together. Well, these are the only two times in the law that the word love, this word for love, is used. So Jesus takes these two ideas of love, love God and love neighbor, and he puts them together. Some scholars think this mashup that he created here, this double commandment to love, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, was maybe unique to Jesus, that maybe he was the first one to kind of mash those two together. Now, Jesus' answer is really traditional, right? Like he goes along with, with what they would say. They would not be shocked by this. But Jesus would challenge everyone by the way he lived out these two commands through his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. They would not expect that, that this was the way of being faithful to God and this was the way of loving your neighbor. If the law is really summed up in love for God and love for one's neighbor, it means God's people are to look like God in how we love one another. As we love God and we love our neighbor, the two are always connected. Now, when we hear the word commands today, we tend to think of it, I don't know if it's military background or if it's a Western kind of thing or what it is, but we tend to think of there's something laid out and then you obey it. It's a formula. In this Eastern world, commands were understood a little bit di differently. They would pray the commandments. The idea was that it was a way that you were pointed or a way that you were oriented. So the Shema, of course, is a prayer. It's, it's an orienting reality for God's people that we are pointed towards God and we are pointed towards one another. Prayer and life always went together. So when Jesus calls us into the kingdom of God, he doesn't just say, here's a bunch of laws, do this, don't do that. He invites us into a new way of being in the world. And Christians throughout history have always, not always, we've been unfaithful at times, but the Christian tradition has seen these connected, loving God and loving neighbor, that they're part of the same disposition. They go together. 
N.T. Wright says this, that's when these new commandments begin to come into their own, when they are seen not as orders to be obeyed in our own strength, but as invitations and promises to a new way of life in which bit by bit hatred and pride can be left behind and love can become a reality. Jesus then switches and he asks the Pharisees a question. So they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And then he asks them a question. And it's kind of a riddle. He asks them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? In the first century, there was this long held belief that the Jewish Messiah, this one who would come and rescue Israel, would come from the line of David, would be a son of David, a descendant of David. David was Israel's greatest king. And he had some serious issues, yes, and his kids had even more issues. But under David's leadership, Israel's empire grew to its height. And people in the first century longed for the days when David's rule and reign would be experienced again. If We could just get back to the time of King David. So the people respond to Jesus's question. The Messiah will be a son of David. But Jesus seems to challenge their assumptions in an interesting way. He seems to say that, yes, that's true. The Messiah will be from the line of David, but Jesus is messing with them a little bit, recognizing that the Messiah will be more than a descendant of David, not just a son of David, but David's Lord. The Messiah is not just an earthly king who will deliver Israel according to the prophecies. He's not just another greater David. He's something more than that. Why is that important? Because as we look at our world then and today, we need more than just someone with the right lineage. We need more than a political leader. We need more than a revolution. Those things won't make the world right. Why? Because the pain of the world is so much deeper than something a political liberator can provide. We need a whole new way of being human in the world. Jesus says that the one they hope for is not an earthly king, but the Lord himself. And he quotes Psalm 110 to support his point here. In the quotation, David himself, the guy they said, he's the one, is prophesying about the coming Messiah who will set Israel right. And David calls somebody Lord. Who's David referring to? If he was one of his descendants, he wouldn't have called him Lord. He would have called him son. Who's greater than the king? Who is the king's Lord? Jesus is giving us a glimpse behind the curtain. It's something that the, it will take the early church years to unpack. Jesus is saying he, as the Messiah of Israel, is not just David's son. He's not just an earthly king who is part of the right family. He's not merely there to provide political liberation. He's come to defeat the ultimate enemy, sin and death itself. The early church would later call Jesus son of God, not just son of David. And this answer certainly ties into their first question. Because what we need more than revolution is love. And this is what Christ displays in his life and death and resurrection. Love of God and love for us. If Jesus is Lord, not just son of David, but son of God, this means he has final authority over everything. It means that he is our hope, not only in the struggles of our world right now, but in the very core brokenness of our lives and the world. 
and he doesn't rule with violence or domination. His rule is characterized by love. Now, I know as we are here this morning that the world feels out of control. Um, There is a really odd reality that we live in now where we live our kind of day-to-day lives, and then we also read the news, and we kind of have to live in the midst of both of those. Um, You know, we read the news and we see these horrible atrocities and war and all these things that are happening, and that can't help but affect us. We read these stories and that can't help but affect us and our heart is grieved and we're torn and then we have discussions with people and we find people have different opinions and perspectives and then also we got to get the kids to school or we got to wake up in the morning and go to work or you know all of these kind of things and so we live in this kind of tension and this reality and then we face stuff in our everyday lives that's challenging. You know we have financial setbacks and we have health concerns and we have relational conflict and so we live in the midst of both of these and it's messy It's one thing, I I think some of what we're experiencing with the recent news and conflict is just how messy everything is. How it's one thing when we look at the world and we go, yeah, it's going to hell in a handbasket and it's clear why, because this, this, and this. It's another thing when we look at the world and we go, this is just a mess. Oh my gosh, this is so hard and so much feels unclear. Getting through this is going to require something altogether different from political revolution and certainly more than violence and war. It's simple to say, all you need is love, right? We retreat into a hippie utopia. But love is not a utopia. Love is the nitty-gritty, everyday faithfulness. In fact, Paul reminds the church in the epistle reading that we read that the gospel doesn't get the kind of results some of the flashy preachers of the day might. The way of the gospel, the way of God's love, always leads to some opposition. It's always difficult. But, Paul says, we're not seeking people's approval. We're not seeking the quick fix. God's people are characterized by humility, nurturing, and the true sharing of our lives. The church, I believe, is called as a microcosm of this new world that God is forming. So this means in the midst of war, God is forming a people of grace and peace. In the midst of self-centeredness and rejection, God is calling a people who give our lives because we know that we're not the ultimate heroes. In the midst of pain, God is forming a people of healing. In the midst of cynicism, God is forming a people who proclaim and live out the gospel even when everything seems stacked against it. And in the midst of a world that's falling apart, God is calling a people of faithfulness to know that there are things that will remain if the world falls apart. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Amen.